All right. Good morning, everybody. That's a joke because both these guys over here said good morning to me. And I was like, I didn't even notice. I'm like, yeah, good morning. So we're kind of all in that same boat. Maybe a long day for all of us. But I'm glad you're here and I hope you find rest and find comfort in God's word tonight. And um, so let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that you are to us. I know we sang songs to you and Aaron had a wonderful prayer about how we love you and adore you. And we don't have enough words to give you everything we want to give you. So we're very thankful that you just know our hearts. And so, Lord, um, as we presented ourselves here before you, that's a great way to put it. We present ourselves to you, that you would do whatever you want to do in our hearts to change us, to teach us, to encourage us, to refresh us. Um, whatever you want to do, we're open to everything. In Jesus' name, amen. We all come from different places this week, tired, encouraged, exhausted, anxious, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm looking at you there, married couple coming up here this Sunday. Um, are you getting excited? Getting excited. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I bet you are. And uh, we're excited for you. Um, tonight, there's a lot of red letters in chapter 18 of Matthew. Um, and I like to think of this chapter as, we're, as we go through it and as I was studying it, like um, you forget who Jesus is sometimes. He's 30 plus years old, 32 right now. Um, a younger guy. In fact, a lot of them would say, a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees looked at looked at him as if, what, what do you know or how could you know at your age? You know, you're not, you're not yet 30 or you're not yet, you're not there yet. You're not someone who can be respected yet. We forget he's ancient of days. That's where I wrote that down for myself. He's ancient of days. I mean, he's been around from the beginning. He's been around for eternity. Just because he's a son doesn't mean he's any less than the father. And, um, and we know that. So when he begins to speak, uh, and we alluded to this a little bit on Sunday when we thought about that long dinner table with all the great, 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 great grandparents that would be sitting there if we were in the Old Testament days, and how many generations would be sitting there, and how much wisdom would be sitting there, this conversation that he has with his disciples is far more deep, far more impactful, or it should be, so much more wisdom here. And so we really want to tune in and, and receive it like that, like you're walking with your dad or like you're walking with your grandpa, and you have one of those moments where you're finally quiet and he's able to say something or she's a grandma's able to say something, and they give you that wisdom, they give you that nugget, they give you that piece of advice or whatever that just kind of hits your heart. I think that's how we should read this chapter, obviously, and every time Jesus speaks, but this chapter especially. Because he's going to talk about how to be the greatest. And that is this world's biggest battle. Who is the greatest? Who is on top? Who has the most power? Who has the most land? Who has the most money? It's all about who has the most. And Jesus, being the ancient of days, being the creator of the universe, gives these guys a bit of advice they've never heard before. Not advice, but truth that they've never heard before. And, they, and you won't hear any place else but here. And that's that you have to be the least. So in verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus likens himself to a little child. Now, he's not, obviously, but there's something that you could spend years on, just chewing on this a little bit, breaking it down. It doesn't need to be that complicated. It is exactly what it states. It's a very simple truth. I think... It's so simple and so revolutionary, it's hard for us to receive it. And that's where the chewing comes in. Um, we're undoing a lot of things in our mind. We're undoing a lot of things that we were trained or thought. And we're undoing a lot of ourselves, a lot of pride, a lot of ambition. Because um, when he says something like this, it almost seems like, well, then everything I've been doing up until this point is, 
is actually counterproductive to when it comes to eternity in the kingdom of heaven. And it is. And so then we struggle. We don't need to struggle, but to believe this little section right here, it's a little bit of a struggle for us because it's so different. He says, I want you to be converted. I want you to change from who you are, from who you are, the person that you are that would ask a question like that, because there ain't a kid in the world that would ask that. Not a, not a humble child anyway would never ask that question. So the very fact that these guys ask that question shows you how far away they are. And that's interesting. The more you sit and listen to somebody and keep your mouth shut, the more they'll reveal who they are just by them talking. The more they talk, the more they reveal who they are. I think that's why Jesus says that if you're going to be, or one of the, probably Paul, if you're going to be an instructor, if you're going to be a teacher, you're going to incur a stricter judgment because that's all I do up here is stand up here and talk and talk and talk and reveal way more than I want anybody to know sometimes um, about myself. Um, personality quirks, problems, sins, whatever it may be, tends to come out because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when you sit up here and you talk, 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 eventually everybody's like, oh, oh, oh. Well, sorry to burst your bubble, but yeah, oh, I say the same thing when I look at myself. Oh. These guys reveal a lot about their character and who they are when they want to know who's going to be the greatest, when they're concerned about who's ahead of them, when they're wondering how far down on the pecking order they are or how far down on the ladder are they. You don't understand you ought to be holding the ladder for everybody else to make sure they get up there safely, to make sure they climb high enough, to make sure that they're elevated. Jesus came to elevate. (laughs) Jesus came to lift us up. Jesus came to make a way for us. Jesus came down so that we could ascend. You see, the whole thing has been, we've been, we've been led by example through Jesus to go down so that we can go up. And so that's really the, the basics. If you, the way up is down and the way down is up. And, and that's the simple truth of the matter. In this world, to make sure that you're humble, you have to convert yourself and be humble. You can't, you can't fake that. We've been around people that fake humility. We call it pious or whatever, or false humility. You can feel it. You can sense it. Um, they elevate themselves in their humility somehow, just by the way they talk, you know. Oh, boy, it's a tough day yesterday. I must have helped three or four grannies change tires on their flats. And somehow that doesn't just make you feel all warm and fuzzy like a humble person just shared their heart with you. It's like they just wanted you to know that they changed three flat tires for grannies, you know? And it's different. And being around children, whether that's in children's ministry or whether that's having your own children, teaches you humility. It really does. The humility of a child that isn't faked, it's genuine, it's coming from a heart that hasn't been tainted yet, that hasn't, the innocence hasn't been ruined They know they're the lowest person on the totem pole. They feel it every day. They understand they're under the authority of everybody in the room, and they act like it accordingly. It's it's amazing to watch. And it's it's heartbreaking in a sense because you appreciate that humility so much in that child. You see their eyes. You see their innocence. The I'm sorry. And you knew it was genuine. That's, they didn't have to use a lot of words like, uh, like I swear in a stack of Bibles, I'm sorry. They don't have to do any of that. They just look at you honestly and they say, I'm really sorry, Dad. And you know, you know, it's genuine. And so when Jesus spoke, we don't get the privilege of being around the campfires with these guys. We're not, we weren't on the side of the hill when he's speaking to 5,000 we get this idea there's a commanding voice. There's this, he can command the room or command the space, you know, and has everybody's attention. But he has it because he's, he's humble. He's truly, trying to, he's truly trying to impart knowledge. Not let everybody know how much knowledge he has. Some people can do that. But he's truly trying to impart the wisdom that he has and give it to people in, a, in, in such a way that everybody's just they could receive it because there's so much humility there. And so he says, you guys have to convert yourselves and become like little children. You'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not talking about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's a bunch of kids trying to, uh, nobody cares. It's what he's trying to get at. When you get to heaven, 
Nobody cares who's the greatest. Nobody wants to be the greatest. Nobody's looking for a front row seat. Nobody's looking to see who's going to sit at the right hand of the left. Nobody up there cares. And so Jesus is trying to impart to them, here's what you've got to understand. First of all, convert to a child, and then we'll talk about it. Because he knows he won't have to talk about it after they convert to a child. We will never have this conversation again. Once you're humble like a child, we'll be good. I won't even have to deal with this question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, my father is, first of all, but he doesn't say that. You know, I am. He doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit, he doesn't say that. He just avoids that altogether and says, why don't you just convert and be like little children because you're not even getting in unless you do that. That's the first thing. And to humble yourself like a child is to understand that everybody's in charge of you. Everybody has authority over you. Everybody does. To have that understanding, to have that heart. We live in a world of self-love. We live in a world of nothing but, uh, and, and I think once you get this chapter, you'll go out, you'll read uh, Christian posts on Facebook, you'll read Instagram, you'll read magazines, if you still read magazines, newspaper articles, all these things that are meant to encourage the person in their personal growth. Every single one of them, the world tells you you've got to love yourself before you can love anybody else. You've got to take me time. You've got to all of it, all of it. And it'll just pop off the page after that. You'll just start recognizing it right away. And you're like, that's not, that's not what he's teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches the opposite of that. To be humble before you can even get into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because once you're there, it's, it's all even. It's all flat. It's all elevated. It's all however you want to look at it. There is no, there's no groups up there like there is down here. So whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Teaching Sunday school is teaching Wednesday school, either one. It's one of the greatest responsibilities we have. Because in this room, no offense, but we're all grown men and grown women. And we ought to know by now. So, and, and, and we ought to be able to study out and we ought to be able to feed ourselves. We ought to be able to do this. And we come together once in a while like this to encourage one another, encourage ourselves and, and receive some food because we need spiritual food. We need to eat and keep ourselves up and moving. But out there, those kids don't know what we should know or know. We don't, they don't know to be encouraged in these things. They don't have this stuff. And so whoever's teaching out there right now has got the greatest audience, the greatest crowd ever. That is the group that doesn't know. That's the group that's trying to figure it out. And, and may God help us if we ruin any one of these little ones in there. If we mess up any one of that humility, if we steal any of that innocence, if we cause any of them to stumble, if we put any legalism in them, if we forget the relationship of grace, mercy, and love, if we forget any of that, if we undo any of that, oh, that's a very delicate room, rooms back there. Because God has his eye, no, you know, I don't think it's offensive, but God has his eye on that side. I mean, he has his eye on this side too, but he's got his eye on that side, and he's watching that. How are they treating them? How are they watching? How are they taking care of them? Because these guys, these kids got it in their humility. It's, it's us that got messed up from there to here somehow or another. When we grew up, we learned something somewhere along the way from the world, from our parents, from grandparents, from other people in our lives, from other adults, from systems, from employers, from somehow or another. We, we get messed up from here to there as we grow up. And Jesus is, sets this little boy, says it's a boy, sets this little boy and it says, his, this is the goal right here. And we've forgotten that. And this is where we're trying to get to right here. This little boy. And do you, you remember what it was like when you were a little boy or when you were a little girl? And you remember, just go there. 
Go there in your mind. Remember when you're five. Remember when you're six. Remember when you're seven or eight years old. I don't know how far back you can go. Go back as far as you can and remember the wonder. Remember the love, the innocence, the simplicity. Remember the enjoyment of life. Remember the the lack of responsibility in a sense. I mean, we have to be responsible, but the lack of concern or worry, you know. And our world, this world, Satan's world, is done with us. He's, he's brought enough anxiety into a lot of our lives, enough, enough undoing of what God had planted in our hearts to begin with, and he works his way down. He's getting closer and closer to the point where now we've got five- and six-year-olds with anxiety. Why? Because that's the goal to bring everybody, to bring, to ruin it, you know? And so Jesus is trying to unruin it, and he's having this wonderful moment saying, it's okay, he's giving permission, he's giving a command, he's telling them the way to heaven is to convert yourself and become like a child. And I don't mean be a simpleton, but definitely simplicity. And to enjoy that grace and mercy, to humble yourself. And in other words, we can. To humble yourself is something that we can do. So important. He spends a lot of time on this. And so just like I was saying, he's watching those guys over there. He's watching these little ones. He's watching our kids and what we do to them. And how we can mess them up with our own sin or with our own anxiety or with our own worries or concerns. Our lack of faith. Verse 6, he follows up with, whoever causes... One of these little ones, still has a little boy in his lap, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. I know that these little kids are going to sin. I know that they're going to have problems. I know that new believers are going to sin because he's not just talking about kids. He's talking about anybody that believes on him. But there are people out there who purposefully try to stumble Christians or stumble little kids. And we can do that as adults. We don't mean to. I think we have our, we feel sometimes to have their, we grew up this way. We were raised this way. We don't have a godly perspective on how we should have been raised and weren't. So we raise our kids the way we were raised, and it's better that they know now that this world is tough and hard and not going to give them anything. That's not what God teaches us. Yeah, it's going to produce thorns, but that's because of our sin. It doesn't have to. And we steal that innocence. We steal that joy. We steal that childhood from them, that that humility, that love, that grace, that mercy. And we can stumble kids. We can mess them up. And he's trying to undo that. And he will undo that. Now, here's the hope. Because because as even as I'm reading this and I'm studying this and I'm sharing this, I'm like, oh, man. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You know, just don't let me mess anybody up any more than I already have in this life. You know, please stop me. From doing any more damage. I think that was the prayer of Jabez, the most important part of it. Just let me not do any harm, you know. The hope is we can. That he can give us a new heart, that he can give us a new mind, that we can begin to see things through a biblical perspective, through God's perspective, by the Holy Spirit, and begin to treat people, treat kids, treat ourselves, treat other people around us, strangers, relatives, whoever it may be, with that grace and mercy like we're supposed to, like we receive, that it's okay. There's that battle, that war. This is how I was raised. This is what I need to do. And then I get this from God, and that's Christianity, but it feels weak. And so I'm going to shun weakness and embrace strength when actually it's the other way around. God's grace and mercy is strength. His love is strength. It's easy. His burden is easy. His yoke it's, 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 it's a light thing to pull. The world wants to weigh us down, and he wants to set us free. I mean, it's just this constant battle. And so he warns them, don't stumble little kids. Stumble yourself if you have to. That's between you and you. 
But don't be stumbling little kids. Otherwise, it'd be better than a millstone hung around you. It'd be better that you would drown than to have done that to a little kid. To a simple person who just loves God. Woe to this world because of offenses. It's a bad thing that there's sin in the world because there's, that's why he came, to die on the cross for those offenses. But woe to the man who brings those offenses because there are people that do that. And so he goes on to the second section here, verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Now, Jesus spoke about hell more than all the other Bible teachers combined. All of them, all the other writers, he spoke more about hell. So those that say that there is no hell or that it's not real or that it's, that it's metaphor or whatever, they're wrong. He came to set people free from the bondage of sin and the wages of sin is death, which is hell. That's his mission. And for anybody to say there is no hell is to deny Jesus his mission and there is no reason for the cross no purpose there is no there's no effect anyway the cross is offensive to people and so he says to cut off your foot so some people are thinking okay so <laughs> if my foot carries me into problems and into trouble i better cut it off so i don't i can't get there anymore and they start taking this literally which they shouldn't obviously i mean let's start here if we're going to cut things off of our lives Let's do that first. Let's cut off all the people that lead us into these things, the people that bring offense, the people that lure us into sin, lure us away from God, that cause us to to gossip, that causes us to uh, do illicit drugs, to, to causes us to sin sexually, causes us to do these things against the Lord. Let's cut that off. You don't need to be cutting your hands off. You don't need to be cutting your feet off. Let's start setting up our lives in such a way Well, that's not okay anymore. And they learn that that's not okay. Well, how come you're cutting me off? Because it's not okay to sin against God. I don't want to do that anymore. And you lead me there, and you stumble me, and I don't want to do that. Well, I don't want to stumble you. Well, great, then receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and let's go walking with God together, not sin. You know, very important before people start cutting hands off and feet off and plucking out eyes is the next thing. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And that's Gehenna. That's the everlasting fire. It's not like just death. It's the, it's the punishment of sin. Our eyes were given to us by God to enjoy the beauty and to look upon your kids and to look upon your wife or your husband or to look upon flowers and all these things that's meant for good. So use it for good. We don't have to be blind because we might use it for evil. You know, the eyes are instruments that God's given us. It can be used either way. Better just to have some self-control and, and, and enjoy the beauty to dwell on those things that are pure, lovely, you know, instead of those things that are evil, wicked. And so he's making a very strong point here. It would be better for you. Now, he's not, he's not suggesting that they should all get knives and start doing this. He's saying it's that big of a deal. It's that important. It would be better to be without your right hand than to sin with your right hand. So stop sinning is the idea. Not cut off your hand, because even then your mind is still going to go to the places you shouldn't go to do the things you shouldn't do. Even if you were blind, you'd still see the images, you'd still think the thoughts, you'd still be sinning as much as if you had eyes or with you, if you had hands. That's not the point. The point is to stop sinning, to walk away from it. And these all tie together. This is all one continuous thought for Christ as he's teaching these guys. Who's the greatest? And in Mark chapter 9, he, he elaborates on this very question a little bit more. I, I don't have too many cross-references tonight because I think it speaks for itself. But when it comes to the greatest, it says this in verse 33 of chapter 9 of Mark. Then he, Jesus, came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, the disciples, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, he knows, but he wants them to say it out loud. And I get this image that maybe he walked on the road and they would trail behind a little bit, you know, and they'd have an argument because they know they couldn't do it around him. 
So he's walking ahead, and he's praying, well, I'm praying, who do you think the greatest is? That's what they were questioning. So he asked them, what were you debating on this? They kept silent. For on the road, they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. They were trying to figure out who was the greatest disciple. Of the 12, who do you think? That, you know, Peter's like, it's me. I'm the one that almost walked on water. You remember that, right? You know? Yeah, but you rebuked Jesus. You told him that he wasn't going to go there. Remember when Jesus called you Satan? So that ain't you. You see, you know the argument. And Matthew's sitting there going, well, I'm a tax collector, so I'm probably not, I'm not anywhere near any of you guys. You know, I'm number 12 all the time here. And so they would dispute this among themselves. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That's what I'm looking for, he says. Looking for someone who's going to serve everybody. Because I'm serving everybody, he says. I'm looking for someone that's going to do that. That's going to see the need, see the problem, and handle it. Deal with it. Not look for someone else to handle it or deal with it, you know? I'm looking for someone who wants to serve everybody. And so he took the little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He takes it a step further. When you receive the child, it's like receiving me. And then since it's like receiving child, receiving me, it's like receiving the father. Well, we love the father. I mean, that's who we're trying to impress. That's who we're trying to get in good with. That's who we're trying to... We know he's in charge up there, so we want to make sure we got it really down with the Father. He said, well, then you need to receive me because he sent me to save you. Okay? And then I'm telling you, the one you're supposed to receive, that you're supposed to receive one of these little kids, too. Oh. See, because kids were a bother. Kids oftentimes are pushed away. They're pushed to the side. They're pushed out of the room. They're, they're told to, to be seen and not heard, which sometimes is true. Sometimes they can say some dumb things. But so can I. I'm pretty sure I should be seen and not heard a lot of times, you know. I understand that. And so he takes it a step further, and he's trying to get this in our, in our heads. He's trying to undo. He's trying to fix. Jesus turns the world right side up. He doesn't turn it upside down. He turns it right side up when he shows up. And that means everything is wrong. Everything we see, everything we do that does not line up with Scripture is wrong. We've got to get that in our heads. That We have to flip it. We have to be flipped with him and get things right. Now, the rest of the world will tell you, you're upside down. You got it backwards. Well, then Jesus did, and I'm with him, and I guess we're both hanging upside down. But I would rather hang upside down with Jesus than to be right side up with you, is the idea. We've got to get there. It's the key. It's everything. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. He is still on the kids. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What? (laughs) Their angels? This is where we get guardian angels from. It isn't necessarily a mythological thing or something that's been added to Christianity. He just said... Don't despise these little ones, for I say to you, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father, as if they're there. So in each classroom of seven or six or 12, sometimes 16 kids at a time, how many kids do you have? Well, a lot, right? Those angels are in that room too, listening to those teachers, their hearts, the lessons that were prepared. He's watching how they're treated. He's watching how they shouldn't be treated. All those angels are there, and they're reporting. They always see the face of the Father. That means they come back to the Father, and they say, man, that teacher was having a bad day. I mean, every one of those kids never wants to come back to church again. They don't want to go to your house anymore, Dad. It's a big deal. And he wants these guys to get that, because apparently they didn't. So he has to take this moment to teach them. These little ones aren't in the way. They're not a bother. They're not a stepping stone. They've got angels that are reporting to the Father about how they're being treated. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine to go to the mountains to seek the one that is, that is straying? 
And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that, uh, that, that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of, the, of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And this is where a lot of Bible teachers switch it to, well, he's talking about believers, he's talking about new believers, he's talking about uh, the, the disciples themselves, the 70. Of course, he doesn't want any person, but he does still have the little boy in his lap. That is the subject of this whole conversation. He does have him as the object lesson. He is showing all these disciples a child. Okay, So it applies. We can get confused about this too. Leaving the 99 to find the one. First of all, he doesn't leave the 99 unprotected. He doesn't leave them without a shepherd. He doesn't leave them uh, vulnerable to the dangers of the world. He probably puts them in a sheepfold or a barrier of some kind, leaves an underling to watch out for them, and then goes and searches. But nobody would leave. You know, where's Timmy? Let's just put our kids in there. Suppose you got six kids, you lose one of them. Well, (laughs) you don't go out looking for the one and leave the other five unprotected or unwatched or whatever because they're all going to scatter too. That's just what happens. No, that's not what he's saying. And... Secondly, there's a difference between a sheep that's going astray and a prodigal son. Both are true. I mean, but both are two very different reactions. A sheep that's gone astray is someone who's just lost. Remember, uh, the, the father looked at Israel as he's looking at all the leadership, the spiritual leadership that he placed in Israel, and how none of them were doing it right. And he sent prophets to tell those pastors that they're worthless shepherds because they're not taking care of the sheep they're supposed to be taken care of, right? Okay. Because he wanted them cared for. And so he saw them all as lost sheep of Israel, and he wanted to gather them and, and pull them in and bring them and take care of them. And so he's the chief shepherd, right? But we also have the prodigal son who willfully walked away from God and the father stayed put. Didn't go hunting high and low for the rebellious son. Didn't go wondering where the rebellious son was. Said The rebellious son needs to learn. How come you didn't call me? Didn't you know I was gone? Yeah, I knew you were gone, but I, I figured you knew where we were still. We're still at, you know, 277, you know, uh, Interlude Road. The church is still here. It's still here, but, but I was in sin off wandering around. But that's your choice to go sin and go wandering. You're not a lost sheep. You know exactly where you are, and you know exactly where we are, and you've made a permanent decision to go be at that place as opposed to here. That's your choice. I'm not going to go drag you out of the bar. What are you doing in here? Get over here. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and drive. Well, I mean, maybe that. Maybe I should do that. But no, if that's your choice, God leaves people that freedom, that choice to go do what they want to do. You can love me and follow me and be here, or you can go do what you want to do. That's up to you. But the father in the prodigal son story stayed put. And so when he talks about these lost sheep, he's talking about truly people that don't know the Lord. And so you go out and you find them and you minister to them. You tell them about the love of Jesus. You're all in constant contact with lost sheep every single day. Most of the world is going to hell. Most of the world doesn't know Jesus. And so chances are you've ran into 10 or 12 people today that, whose destination is hell. They're lost sheep and there's an opportunity for you to share Christ with them and to find them or let them find the Lord and to be brought into the fold. Verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So he's talking about how we should deal with one another. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, Matthew writes that down because that's very personal for him. I remember him saying that we're supposed to treat him like tax collectors. Boy, I'm glad I left my table, you know, and followed the Lord, and I'm not that anymore. Now, there is a step I believe that's missing here, so let me correct Jesus. I'm kidding. I'm being funny. But it also says that love covers a multitude of sin. Let's start there, you know. 
as believers, that love can just cover a multitude of sin. I don't have to confront every single person in my whole life that's ever wronged me. I've been wronged, and I want you to know I've been wronged. Hear me. Or how about you just let it go and forgive them and not be that way, you know? Well, I can't let it go. It seems to eat on me. Then, then go talk to them. Don't talk about them. Go talk directly to them. Keep the matter between you and them. You don't need to be spreading it around or telling everybody and including it in. And that's where most church problems come from. That's where most disputes in the church come from is people that won't do this very first step and just quietly, peacefully, gently, lovingly go talk to that person and say, I don't know if you know this, but that really hurt my feelings when you did that. Um, and I just, I, I, I'm having a hard time with it. And so I just, you know, get it out there. And they may say, I had no idea. It really was unintentional. I was, I meant to do that. And I, you were collateral damage. I didn't even think, I didn't even know I hurt you. Thank you for telling me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, good. Cause I was thinking you were thinking this about me. No, I wasn't thinking that about you at all. I was thinking, oh, wow, this is all in my head then, or, you know, or whatever. Or it was a genuine thing especially with spouses, you know, I don't think, you know, why are you so quiet? (laughs) I'm quiet because you said this. Did I say that? You know? Yeah, you said that. Uh, Well, that came out sideways. It wasn't meant towards you, but it did come out that way. And so forgive me. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean for you to reap my bad mood that I was in or my stress or my thing that I brought home from work came out sideways and you definitely didn't have that coming. And I apologize and please forgive me for my sin against you. Okay. You know, or whatever. It's good to do that. Now, if they don't hear you and they say, I didn't sin. Well, you kind of (laughs) did, you know, bring somebody with you, somebody you trust, someone who can keep it between, keep it in the group. And it is a group now. And then you talk to them all together. And that's to make sure that the conversation is correct. And that maybe those two, because sometimes the person you bring with you will say, you know, I know you brought me with you to be on your side, but you're kind of wrong. That's what that other person is there to do. Not necessarily stand there behind you going, "Mm -hmm, get them. Yeah, I got you. You know, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's really meant to be someone to look at the sit from an outside perspective and say, I can see. Yeah. Mm, I know you wanted me to be on your side, but I don't think they meant it that way. I thought you were going to be on their side now. No, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm just trying to tell you as I'm looking at this, that's what they're there to do. Or they may agree with you completely and say, yeah, boy, that person is just nasty. Why are they so nasty? I don't know. But I tried to tell them, and they wouldn't listen, and so you get the idea. And then if they don't do that, you bring it in front of everybody. The whole congregation gets to be involved at that point. Boy, I'd, I'd avoid that. It's a good place to, to stop, but definitely go through the steps um, if you can. That's the idea. And if he refuses to hear the church, then they, they are actually not allowed to fellowship in the church anymore at that point. I mean, if it's a real sin, it's got to be sin. It can't just be a difference of opinion. I wanted blue carpet. You guys ordered red carpet. I'm furious. And I just want you to know that I'm mad that you ordered blue carpet. I ain't going to have to deal with it, you know. Or go someplace that has red carpet, whatever you want to do. But don't that's not sin. It needs to be sin. It needs to be in Scripture that it's sin. It needs to be well proven that they have sinned. I mean, there's a lot going on here. You can't just say, I was offended because of your tone. My tone? I mean, oh, well, then stand by to be offended because my tone is never known. So, now this is not a way to kick people out of the church. That's how it may be taught sometimes. This is how to not have problems in the church. We're supposed to stop after verse 15. That's how it's supposed to end. It only goes further if there's rebellion, if there is stubbornness or stiff-neckedness, as the Bible, as the Old Testament calls it. You're stiff-necked. That's when 16 and 17 come into play. 15 is supposed to handle it. And even before that, 14, which isn't really written there, it's like 14 and a half, just to let it go. Love covers a multitude of sin. People have bad days. Understand that about your spouse. Understand that about your friends. Understand that about people in the church. Not everybody's on. You know, not everybody has their A game on all the time. It's hard. Life's hard. Life beats them up. Have compassion. Oh, boy. That was kind of a vicious rant. 
I wonder what happened to them today. It should be the first instinct from someone who's truly walking with the Lord. Are you okay? How was your day? Did something bad happen? Can I pray for you? You know, and don't say that. Can I pray for you? Because you've been kind of nasty to me today. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, can I really pray for you? Or better yet, just, just cover over it. Make them a bowl of ice cream with something on top. I like berries on top of my ice cream. I'm kind of a fruit guy. And then pray for them silently. Pray for them. Lift them up. Why are they so light? Why are they so angry all the time? Pray for them. Quietly. You don't even let them know you're praying for them. I'm praying for you, brother, because you're an angry dude. You know, just pray for them. In a world that just loves to vent, the Bible, Proverbs, tells us that a fool vents all his feelings. I just keep that in my mind sometimes, in my heart. I start thinking about, and sometimes I do this, I'll come home and I'll start venting. I, I was studying. I'm being spiritual, studying. I've got this new land. I find a quiet part of the pasture, and I go park my car over there in the shade, and I'm looking at this rabbit looking at me, and I'm looking at this raccoon and thinking, why didn't I bring my gun? And I'm kidding. <laughs> And I'm watching all this happen, and here comes this white truck on our property, just driving through the gate, pulls up next to me, rolls down his window, turns off his car and says, you having trouble? No, I'm having some peace and quiet till you showed up. No, I, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I said, no, no. Well, I saw the gate open. I saw the tracks. I just want to see. Okay. So that's what we do. Okay. Country. I'm figuring this out. Um, so So... I get all, I'm out of it now, and I can't study, and I, don't, I just, it, it, what, the conversation went on forever. And so finally, I just followed him on out and shut the gate and went home, and I told my kids all about it. <laughs> oh, there I was, trying to study, and so I went venting like a fool all of my feelings. You know? We've got to be careful. Jesus is trying to fix us, and I am constantly being fixed. Assuredly, I say to you, and I don't have commentary on this because I don't know. So I'm going to let this out. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Really? <laughs> you know? Really? Hmm. Both my wife and I agree we should win the lottery in Jesus' name. No, it doesn't work like that, does it? And so my commentary is this. If you can't get two or three people to agree with you on something, spiritually, you know, you're there for prayer, you're there in the midst of Jesus, you're both there to stand at the throne, you know, and it, so this is my only commentary. If you can't all agree to pray this prayer, then it probably won't be answered. But if you can, all three, as Christians who love Jesus, can come before the throne and agree in prayer on something, that can be answered. Okay? So I'll leave it at that. I think that's what he's getting at here. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? There's Peter trying to climb the ladder because he didn't listen about being the lay. I can forgive seven times. Matthew can't, you know, is the idea. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which is how much? 490. If you didn't do the math in your head, that's 490 times. Now he's not saying, of course, 491. We can slam him. That's it. 491. No, I think he's pointing to something here. Um, when Daniel's prophecy was given, which we're going to go over this Sunday, um, when we start Ezra, the decree went out for Israel to return, and that was the countdown beginning for the Messiah to show up, and that is the 70 times 7, the weeks of years, okay, the whole thing. Um, and we'll go over that again, but it ends up being 490, and they should have known that day that they were supposed to have that visitation, and Christ comes in that day for what? For the forgiveness of sins, you see, and I just think that's an interesting 
connection here. They should be thinking that way. It's like a, it's like a, when he's on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why, is, why have you forsaken me? That's a pointing to Psalm 22. It should have triggered something in the student. Psalm 22 is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is what's happening. Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right in front of me. Likewise, how many times should I forgive? 70 times 7. That should trigger a Daniel 9 thing in their minds, but maybe it didn't. Either way, forever. Forgive them infinitely. There is no amount. There is no time. There is no, uh, that's it. There's no, forgive just as much as you've been forgiven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, um, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. That's us with Christ. If you didn't pick up on that, Christ has forgiven us our debt. He not only is not making us pay for it and giving us more time to pay for it. He's just wiping it clean. He's moved with compassion for us simply because he has that ability and that authority to do so. Verse 28, but that servant, that's us, went out and found one of his fellow servants, that's each other, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay you all. That should trigger a response like we got. No, you don't have to pay me. I'm not going to give you more time. I don't want you to have to pay me back at all. It's forgiven forgive you. I forgive you. We should be moved with compassion. This guy wasn't, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master, that'd be God in this situation, all that had been done. Then his master, that'd be God, after he had called him, that'd be us, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you, to each of you, from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. It's as heavy as it sounds. And all I can think of is how many people do I have in prison in my life? How many people in my heart are in prison paying off their debt? I put them there. I'm not letting them out until I'm satisfied that they've paid me everything I owe. How many people? And I best open those doors. And I best let them know, or at least in my heart, forgive them all that they ever owed me because I owed Christ so much. My sin was so great. I have so much sin. We were sitting at the table last night and Evangeline, my sweet daughter Evangeline. Dad, weren't you arrested for this? Dad, didn't you used to do this? Dad, didn't you do this? I was like, shut up. (laughs) We've got a guest at the table, a future son-in-law here that doesn't even know all those things, you know, kind of thing. And then Mariah joins in. Yeah, Dad, didn't you do this? That's my fault for sharing with them my past. But as they go through my list, and I'm like, yeah, I did do that. And I did that. And I did so many other things I didn't tell you guys. And they're like, Dad, you were like naughty. You were like a naughty. I'm like, I was naughty. And so when you study for this, the very next day, you begin to think about all that Christ has forgiven you. And I think of the big stuff, you know almost felonies in my life, you know, kind of thing. I don't think about all the little stuff. Didn't you climb on top of the school one time? Yeah, I did that. Didn't you break into the school one time? Yeah, I did that. Didn't you vandalize that? Yeah, I did that. That's a big list of stuff. None of you, nobody in my life's ever done that stuff to me. Nowhere near felony status, you know. And so we best be letting people out of our prisons that we've got in our minds and in our hearts. Let them go, especially our spouses. Especially our spouses. Let them go. Free them up. Give them that forgiveness. Give them that grace. 
They don't have to pay us a dime. They don't have to pay us anything to let those things go. Love covers a multitude of sin, and certainly he has done that for us. We can certainly, the least we can do is do that for the people around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your command to forgive. It's not an option. We're commanded to forgive. So God, help us to be good forgivers, quick forgivers. I pray that that would be our, that would be known for that, that we can't be offended, that we can't be, we, we don't put people in our own personal prisons, that we'd just be known as gracious, merciful forgivers. And, and to, to just live in that place where we know how much you've forgiven us, that we can certainly overlook and forgive all the sins that are around us because they're nowhere nowhere near what we've been forgiven by you. The, 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 The monetary difference is huge in that story. So we thank you for the forgiveness we've received from you, and if we need a dose of reality, I pray that you bring it to our minds and show us all the things. I know that you forget, and so maybe I shouldn't even ask you to do that. I know you forget our sins. Sometimes, Lord, we forget ourselves how much grace we've been given, how much mercy we've been given. So it'll help us to just have a really good grasp of that. And I, and I think, Lord, if we do, we'll have a really good and easy time forgiving all the small, petty things around us, Lord, or nothing compared to the felonies. So we thank you for tonight's teaching. We thank you for the wisdom you've given us. You're the ancient of days. You're the first and the last. You're the alpha and the omega. You have all wisdom. You have all knowledge. And you have just shared such beautiful wisdom with us tonight, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to soak it all in, to chew on it, to apply it, to, to turn our world right side up, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come on up. I'd be glad to pray with you.